Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As you saying, the uh, AI is projecting the past and so will not adapt to the future. So a recommendation we are giving to our marketing teams is that they shouldn't follow 100% of the recommendation and keep a proportion for innovation. So part of what they need to do is also to test new channels to be bold in part of their investment. And that will fuel in the future the, uh, the AI with new data. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Sarah, we've explored this a bunch, but the phenomenon TikTok made me buy it is not just about TikTok. It's literally how the internet convinces people to buy things, whether it's online or in store. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like I've spent 90% of my career trying to explain this concept to people. And yet, despite the fact that even MeSearch says that that's the case, it doesn't seem to resonate when it comes to allocation of budget. There's still such a proclivity to assuming that whether it's last click attribution or just the idea of what it takes to win an in-store shopper just doesn't seem to add up nearly as much as, frankly, it should. And to create credibility behind this story, I know Profitero recently came out with a report around unpacking digitally influenced offline sales. Yeah, we did it because, well, first of all, there's been like this stat that's been out for, I don't know, a couple of years saying 62% of all purchases are digitally influenced. It's a great stat. It's from Forrester accredited and all, but that was in 2021. And that was when people were mostly buying stuff on e-com because of safety and protectionism because of COVID. So the question is, how much does digital influence the shopper today? If you're going to buy a bottle of vodka, how much are you influenced based on promos that you get in the store versus any research that you might be doing online, either proactive or reactive research? So we conducted this study. It's the digitally influenced shopper, but I call it the Como report, the cost of missing out. Mm -hmm. If you actually don't meet the customer, the shopper, where they are on their terms to answer their questions, then you're going to lose them to somebody who is, because if you're not there, you're invisible. Let's take a category where a lot of in-store purchases happen, alcohol. What's something that we should all understand about digitally influenced alcohol offline sales? Yeah, I mean, I would recommend going to profterra.com and downloading the full report so you could see it country by country. Wait, is this an ad? Is this an ad? I didn't sign up for this. You did not sign up for this. Um, But, you know, sometimes a girl's got to do what a girl's got to do. This is for thought leadership. I didn't say sign up and get a demo, although if you'd like to, by all means. But I think that you can go country by country and vertical by vertical and really torture it. But I think one of the things that's really most 
I don't know that I would call it surprising, but I think it's helpful to socialize within an organization is the proclivity of shoppers to buy a product more based on their online content and reviews than what they see in store. People still have their noses in their phones when they're going shopping. And so you can't just assume that if there's a placard or an end cap that's shouting at you, that that's going to work the way it used to work. In fact, the US, for example, seven in 10 shoppers are more likely to buy a product because of its online content or reviews than in-store signage and displays. And if you talk about alcohol, let's say you go to a liquor store, for example. If you happen to have a great person that works at the liquor store, sure, they will be a concierge to you and that's awesome. But you might also want to get a second opinion. Your second opinion is going to be the digital shelf. Or there isn't somebody helpful to you because you just don't have somebody helping you at the store. And so your direct thing is, let me look at the reviews. Let me see if there's a better price somewhere else. And let me see if, if I'm debating between two levels of the same scotch, a 12 year versus an 18 year is going to make a difference to me. And that's what the internet does. So if that purchase starts in store, ends in store, but digital plays a role in influencing it, how do you give the credit? And in alcohol, I think that probably could not be more true than any other category. Well, we have Profiteros, credible perspective. And now let's hear from someone in market every day on how they think about digitally influenced offline sales and the overall industry. We are going to bring Pernod Ricard's Global Chief Digital Officer onto the show. Hello, Pierre. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Sarah. Well, we're so happy we're able to get you in before all of Europe shuts down for summer. And what great time to have you, because I imagine this is peak drinking season for many of your brands. Yeah, we have a number of brands which are enjoyed a little more during the summer, but people also like to enjoy them during the winter with the nice memories of the drinks in the summer. So it's an all-year-round business, which is pretty nice. Spoken like a true salesman, making sure everyone all year long. Pierre, you've had an incredible journey at Pernod Ricard. I believe that you've been there over 20 years, which in today's career environment is pretty remarkable. When I personally think about the last 20 years, I have to imagine that alcohol compared to other industries like technology, education, even FMCG has been less disrupted with the pace of change, but curious to hear from your perspective, what do you feel has changed within the alcohol industry since you started and what remains to be true? Yeah, indeed, it's true that I would say the core business has stayed uh, the same. We still uh, sell most of our products through uh, retailers or wholesalers uh, in different parts of the world. Now, a number of things have been changing. The first one for me is the way we reach consumers. In terms of marketing, there's much more channels to reach the consumers. They are much more specialized. Of course, we are thinking of the social media and each of them has uh, its uh, particularity. There's also more personalization, which is uh, possible. So uh, we can personalize to uh, groups of people the marketing. Of course, there's the uh, e-commerce uh, channels, which are new. The proportion of products sold in uh, e-commerce is still relatively low compared to uh, other FMCGs. We are talking about 5% average worldwide, knowing that some countries like uh, India still forbid the sales of alcohol uh, online. So it's a small shift that we've had, but uh, there are also new things which are coming in. We have new ways of measuring the 
performance of our brands in the shorter term before we had to wait one quarter to get a reasonable results. Now, of course, with e-commerce, we have almost live data, but also we can have the performance of campaigns in the offline channels through marketing mix modeling that were not available a few years ago. So the business itself has not changed, but the way of doing business has been evolving significantly, I would say, compared to when, uh, as you remember nicely, I was starting 20 years ago. I think that's a badge of honor <laughs> working at the company. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You've gone through a lot of change, both in terms of even the brand equities of each of the brands consumer preferences, just trends as it relates to that as well. One thing I think is something that requires a lot of education, upscaling and awareness is the whole idea of the role that digital plays in informing an in-store purchase. At Profitero, we call it the COMO, the cost of missing out, slightly different than the fear of missing out. It's really the cost. So if there are so many people that are still making those decisions and those decisions are influenced by what they see online, whether that's at the digital shelf or whether that's through social or other kinds of influences, there's a lot of filling in the gaps that needs to happen organizationally to let people understand the role that digital plays in influencing. As you play a role both leading digital, but as a top executive at the organization, how have you been able to educate internally on what are effective mechanisms to get people to choose a per no brand outside of like, I guess, beyond the way you look at, say, on-prem or sampling or like the other quote-unquote traditional mechanisms? That's a really interesting topic because, uh, yeah, changing a, a wide organization like Bernard is, uh, it takes time. And what is important is to make the bridge between what remains fundamental and that everybody knows, for example, in marketing about the awareness, the top of mind consideration, et cetera, and the new techniques to actually influence those parameters and the way to uh, execute them. One of the new things that we're able to do, as I was mentioning before, is the fact that now we can measure the return on investment of each of the touch points that we are using, whether it's a traditional TV or addressable TV, whether it's a social media, whether it's a retail media. And now we have developed over the past three years a tool that we internally call a Matrix that measures based on three years of historical advertising data by week and sellout data by week. We are able through AI to identify those return on investment. And this has been a fundamental shift in the way we are doing marketing internally, because to be honest, before we had little ID, we had some benchmarks coming from uh, third-party companies, but not a precise measurement. And most of decisions on marketing investment were done following recommendations from agencies. And agencies do like uh, what we do in Pernod Ricard, that they tend to sell the product on which they make a better margin. 
So now we have our own way of uh, deciding this. It's much more precise. And this has changed also the conversation between the marketing teams and the commercial teams. Because before, marketing was in charge of the long-term brand equity, absolutely no impact expected on sales. Whereas now there's a conversation between the uh, commercial teams and marketing on what we should do to boost the short-term sales versus the long-term building. And also new discussions between marketing teams and the financial teams, because before, again, the uh, financial teams would come to marketing saying, um, okay, we are short of budget. We are going to cut uh, 15% of your uh, advertising and promotion budget. Now there's a discussion. Okay, which brand has the best uh, return investment? Actually, could we invest more to gain more? So this is the new type of conversations which are happening thanks to uh, implementing that uh, marketing, model- marketing mix uh, modeling uh, tool uh, internally which is uh, quite new. And we see also yeah, new conversations on the retail media, because as you mentioned, we can do advertising uh, online on a retailer, knowing that the key objective might not be influencing the immediate sales on uh, that channel, but could be influencing. And we can prove it again through uh, data, uh, the choice in the, in the supermarket. So that's new dynamics, more complex. And so what we've done is that we've done a mix of importing, I would say, new skills from other industries, which were more mature in uh, in those areas. But we've also implemented a massive uh, upskilling um, effort at different levels, uh, at the, the top management level, so that the CEOs, the marketing directors, commercial directors understand uh, those uh, new uh, dynamics. But uh, also uh, for all the, the employees, everybody has uh, access to um, new training modules that we are publishing uh, every uh, month. And for example, we have now one on the chat GPT, which uh, came out uh, three weeks ago, which is actually uh, delivered by uh, an AI avatar. So we are really following the trends and making sure that nobody's left behind on those new ways of working in the company. Love hearing the investment in terms of one, really data-driven marketing and two, upskilling the organization. I love your perspective on the following. You take things like media mix modeling, and AI. And per your point, what it's doing is it's processing historical data to make forward-looking decisions. But we're living in a world where the pace of change is just so fast and new channels are entering the market every single day. So on the retail media side, right, a retailer might come to market with a new retail media offering that never existed 30 days ago. You have platforms like Meta launching platforms like Threads that never existed before. So when it comes to how do we determine investments for things that might have never existed before, how does the organization approach that? Okay, so there are two ways to answer that question. The first one is that, as you're saying, the AI is projecting the past and so will not adapt to the future. So a recommendation we are giving to our marketing teams is that they shouldn't follow 100% of the recommendation and keep a proportion for innovation. So part of what they need to do is also to test new channels to be bold in part of their investments, and that will fuel in the future the, uh, the AI with new data. Second, of course, we need to continue to take bets. Bets on new media, bets on new products, bets on new uh, channels. And this is what a company like Pernod Ricard has done 
for a long time. Uh, I'm not sure that a bet on, uh, I don't know, Jameson Orange would have been uh, a key choice recommended by uh, an AI uh, chatbot. However, this is the kind of things we are doing. And what we are doing also is uh, the, that part of uh, innovation in the, the ways of working is also, I think for me, part of the um, DNA of, uh, of Pernod Ricard, where we have that uh, creativity and that willingness to try new things, which is embedded in, I would say, in the, in the culture. So we are continuing to, uh, to do that. And that's really important uh, in, as you say, a, a world which is constantly uh, changing and everybody likes to do a, a part of, of exploration. Now, what we're seeing is that it's a freedom within a frame. We still need about 80% of the things to be uh, within the frames and recommendations to make sure that most of our efforts are focused on having the best performance because the performance on any brand will fuel also the, the capability to invest again on uh, on the portfolio in the, in the future. Now, that's really helpful and thoughtful. As you think about your role in a global capacity, how do you distribute that thought process across the more mature markets, across more emerging markets? That's a lot to unpack for a more mature market. They'll be picking up what you're putting down. Like you explain that and they're like, okay, got it. Let me see how I can do that. I mean, assuming everybody gets along beautifully. But then beyond that, there's the, okay, so how do I bring people along on their digital maturity as digital becomes a greater percentage of time spent? Yes, the way we are addressing the, the markets are different because indeed, actually, the bigger or more mature markets are not the easiest one to convince because there are more parties. They also have sometimes uh, or most of the time a higher level of, uh, of experience. So you need to convince a little more, but also you get more feedback on improving uh, solutions that we might develop uh, centrally. Either it's technical solutions or uh, guidelines. and what we make sure is that we derive the learnings that we're having on bigger markets into smaller markets. So for example, all the performance metrics that we've identified for the different types of touch points, the level of uh, threshold or saturation that we can see on, uh, on campaigns, we are making sure that we are cascading down those to all markets so that the new learnings that we have can be uh, applied uh, widely whatever the, the maturity of, uh, of the market. And then it's not only the maturity of uh, our teams or the size, but also the availability of data in each market that uh, requires a different, uh, a different approach. So we still need to adapt a lot to uh, each of the, the market. And this is why also in our organization, uh, we have uh, people, our people in a lot of uh, markets to be able to do that uh, uh, fine tuning adaptation that makes the, the difference versus uh, companies that have uh, a smaller uh, network in the, in the globe. You're talking a lot about market dynamics and you know, US being this mature market, but you have the three tier system, which is unique to the US, and then India, where selling alcohol online right now is illegal. In terms of the next big markets, that you think everyone should be paying attention to? Who are you bullish on? Well, there's an easy one, which is uh, China. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
apart from that, I think that all markets are, are super interesting. Travel retail is uh, more than rebounding. Uh, so it's a really a nice uh, dynamics uh, so far with also a really par- particular way of addressing that market because that's the same consumers that you have in the domestic markets, but you find in the different place. Uh, and also there is the availability of sellout data, which is not as good as uh, what we could uh, expect that makes the life of uh, marketers a little more complex. However, we have uh, nice things. There's the uh, the digital marketing in airport that can be uh, uh, fine-tuned actually by the hour. Uh, so there's a, a, a number of uh, really interesting dynamics. You might have seen the Cognac uh, Martel ads whose language is uh, changing depending on the uh, arrival times or departure of the airplanes. It's really interesting market to address. And actually, it's not one market, but a, a set of uh, a number of places that need to be uh, to be addressed differently. First of all, I love the use of technology to actually provide personalization even outside of market. That's like super duper cool. Second of all, I noticed your answer was basically, I love all my children equally. <laughs> oh, yes. Chinese are really fast, but I love all my countries. <laughs> Which, by the way, it's, it's awesome in a role like the one that you're in where there's and understanding that they have a different set of needs and they have a different set of cultures and a different willingness or eagerness to speak with the role that global plays in that as well. So if you love all your children equally, but they all have their own dynamics, what's your favorite cocktail? Okay, my favorite cocktail is the uh, Jameson Sour. So I like the acid taste combined with the smoothness of, okay, I have to admit my favorite whiskey in the portfolio. So I really like that uh, that cocktail. I actually l- love uh, having uh, nice cocktails in cocktail bars uh, uh, across the across the globe. And this is definitely my number one pick. Uh, if I uh, don't see something really new to test on the the cocktail menu, a Jameson Irish whiskey sour. Yes. All right. You you heard it from one who would know. That's a really good. That you you are by far better than most of the TikTok influencers out there on this one. Keep it classic. Keep it classy. Feels like an all-year-round drink. That it is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pierre, we have to ask you our famous last question, which is, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Okay, so the bravest thing I've ever done, I'm going to switch to a personal uh, topic. And I think it's allowing uh, myself to be myself in uh, both professional and personal life. And so coming out at the age of 38 was not an easy thing to do, but I really made the, the right choice when I uh, decided uh, to, to do it. And now I'm spending a lot of time uh, fostering a workplace where everybody can feel confident about uh, being uh, who they are. So I'm sponsoring our uh, LGBT uh, ERG group, for instance, with a really nice party of 500 people uh, in June in uh, in Paris. And also I'm doing a, a number of talks in other companies or internally because I really believe that the knowledge and understanding foster the acceptation and creating a really great uh, environment. I love that. I came out at 27, so I totally understand what you're saying. And thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the, uh, the interview. That was uh, super nice. Yeah. Well, next year I expect my Pernod Pride party invite now. Yeah, of course. Don't hesitate to give me a call and we'll make sure that you have nice products to enjoy. Absolutely. Well, thank you. If you're looking to learn more about alcohol globally, make sure you follow Pierre on LinkedIn.
I love how Pierre is reimagining the 80-20 rule for decision-making going forward, whether it's based on media mix modeling or AI. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to nerd out a little bit more on the topic of media mix modeling, go check out Julie Barrowman from Kellogg's episode. If you want to continue to explore global perspectives, go check out Henkel's VP of Global Commerce, Boris. If you enjoy Brave Commerce, tell a friend, write a review, like us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice, meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.